The records don't lie, but your ancestors might. Welcome to The Criminal Genealogist, where true crime and genealogy intersect. Welcome to The Criminal Genealogist podcast. I am your host, Michelle Bates. I realized in the last couple of episodes, I haven't been introducing myself. Whoops. So for those new to the podcast, as I said, I'm Michelle Bates, and I'm a professional genealogist who loves researching ancestors, especially the troublemakers. I'm still searching for them in my family line, so listeners send me their criminal ancestors for me to research further and discover what was true and what was just family lore. Have your own criminal ancestors you want to feature on the podcast? Send me a message either via my website at thecriminalgenealogist.com or you can email us at thecriminalgenealogist at gmail.com. Speaking of the website, you can follow us there and also on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I would love your support of the podcast by following us and sharing with your friends. And if you love the content, as I hope you do, head over to Apple Podcast and give us a five-star review. Well, hopefully. You can listen to us there or on our website or any of your favorite podcast apps. All the links are in the show notes. When I was putting together this episode, I used my favorite podcast site, Alitu. Have you ever been interested in starting your own podcast? Do it. With Alitu, it is so easy to record and edit my podcast episodes and upload them directly to my host site. Alitu is a podcast maker like nothing you've seen before. Automate the sound engineering and get simple tools to do the rest, giving you more time to focus on growing your show. Give it a try using my referral link in the show notes. Moving the podcast to a bi-weekly format has given me more time to focus on each episode, and today's episode I loved researching. Meet Lizzie Kardish, the 15-year-old Native American girl who didn't want to go to school on her reservation, so she burned it down. She was arrested and convicted of arson and given a life sentence. But wait, there's so much more to the story and young Lizzie. Elizabeth Lizzie Kardish was born in Wisconsin sometime between 1890 and 1893, depending on which record you believe. Elizabeth, a.k.a. Lizzie, is first found on the 1894 Native American census rolls. She's listed as four years old, and her parents are John and Susan Kardish, ages 67 and 41, respectively. Her father is quite a bit older than her, uh, a shocking 63 years older. She also has multiple siblings living with the family, Louis, age 16, Susan, 14, Louise, 9, John, 7, and two Marys, ages 6 and 7 months, 6 years and 7 months. These are listed as their Indian names, and the column for English names is blank. The family is also on the 1895 and the 1896 rolls. On the 1900 census Indian population schedule, Lizzie is listed as age 7 instead of the expected 10 based on earlier records. Two siblings are missing on this census, the oldest son, Lewis, and the older, Mary, who would have been 22 and 12 years old in 1900. The family was living on the Mononymy Indian Reservation in Shawana, 
Wisconsin, and all the family is listed as born in Wisconsin. Now, next to mom, it states that she had born seven children, but only five were living, which explains the missing children. On the Native American census rolls from 1901, Lizzie is listed as age 11, and her mom's name is Cecilia instead of Susan. The Carter's family was part of the Mononymy tribe, which, according to the Mononymy Indian Tribe of Wisconsin website, is a tribe that dates back 10,000 years, mainly in Wisconsin, but also in Michigan and Illinois. The Mononymy tribe's history is unique because their origin or creation um, begins at the mouth of the Mononymy River, a mere 60 miles east of their present Indian reservation. This is where their five clans, Ancestral Bear, Eagle, Wolf, Moose, and Crane, were created. Not many tribes in the region can attest to the fact that their origin place exists close or near to their present reservation. At the start of the treaty era in the early 1800s, the Mononymy occupied a land base estimated at 10 million acres. However, through a series of seven treaties entered into with the United States government during the 1800s, the tribe witnessed its land base erode to a little more than 235,000 acres today. The tribe experienced further setbacks in the 1950s with the U.S. Congress's passage of the Mononymy Termination Act, which removed federal recognition over the tribe and threatened to deprive their people of cultural identity. Fortunately, the tribe won back its federal recognition in 1973 through a long and difficult grassroots movement that accumulated with the passage of the Mononymy Restoration Act on December 22, 1973. Back to the Cartridge family. In the early 1900s, Lizzie and her siblings were attending school on the reservation in the village of Kashina, Wisconsin. In 1905, Lizzie, along with another girl on the reservation, decided to set the boys' and girls' school buildings on fire. According to the reporting in the Pittsburgh Press, Lizzie wanted to go to school at the Carlisle Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, but the commissioner wouldn't allow her to. Now, this reporting in this article from 1906 is highly biased and bigoted, which was obvious by the quote, Lizzie clambered into the building and set the fire. It cost the government $75,000 to replace it, but Lizzie didn't care. She is an Indian. When an Indian hates, he burns. Lizzie hated the school. She burned it. Wow. Really? You know, it never ceases to shock me when I read this type of reporting, which is a sad statement to make. Moving on, the Democrat and Chronicle newspaper out of Rochester, New York, reported that Lizzie acted under the influence of older students. Initially, both girls pleaded not guilty. The other girl was ultimately discharged per motion from the district attorney. Lizzie later pleaded guilty in June of 1906 in the United States District Court at Oshkosh, Wisconsin, for setting fire to the school buildings on the night of January 17, 1905. She was immediately sentenced to life imprisonment at the U.S. Penitentiary at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, by Judge Quarles. Life for arson, where no one was hurt, seems extreme for sure, but the judge didn't have a choice. Unfortunately for Lizzie, it was law at the time. It was an old law, but it was law at the time that 
if a Indian was convicted of arson, that it was immediately a life sentence. I haven't checked to make sure the law has been updated, but um, I'm going to go with it has. Now, Lizzie is sent to Leavenworth, which seems to be an error on Judge Quarles' part because Leavenworth didn't take women. She wasn't the first woman there either, and not the only one there when Lizzie was there, which I'll talk about in a future episode. The Topeka State Journal reported on June 16, 1906, that Leavenworth was a new federal penitentiary. It opened in 1903. And there was no ward and no provision for keeping women prisoners. Looking at her inmate file on the National Archives website, there is a letter dated June 30th, 1906 to R.W. McClothery, the warden at Leavenworth. And it's in response to a letter that he sent on the 25th of that month to the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. It states that the warden had already removed Lizzie to the Kansas State Prison in Lansing for safekeeping, since they are not equipped for women. The agent from the DOG showed his concern with the error and that the judge who had to sentence Lizzie was going directly to Washington to meet with the president to have her pardon. I wonder what poor Lizzie was thinking this whole time. Taken from her home in Wisconsin to federal prison in Kansas, then transported again to the state prison in Kansas. Her intake form at Leavenworth tells a little more about Lizzie. She was 5 feet, 5 and 3 fourths inches, 130 pounds, with black hair and dark maroon eye color. Huh? Dark maroon? Maybe they meant a reddish brown color? It seems like an odd description to me. I've never heard that eye color. Her nose was listed as prominent and straight, her complexion Indian, and her teeth were quote-unquote full good. Her build was slender, and she had an abscess scar on the right side of her neck. Now, her mug shot, which you must check out on the website, shows the scar. She's listed as a student at Indian School, which we already knew, and she was Catholic. There are so many details about her in her inmate file, which is why these records are genealogy gold. Both of her parents are listed as living and both born in Wisconsin. So what about that pardon that the judge was going to Washington, D.C. to get for Lizzie? Judge Quarles didn't want to sentence her, like I said earlier, but he didn't have a choice as that was his only option. Well, he was successful. In the September 16th, 1906 issue of the Leavenworth Times, the headline reads, quote, life sentence of 15-year-old girl commuted, end quote. President Roosevelt commuted Lizzie's sentence until she was 21, but she wouldn't have to remain in prison. She would be sent to a reformatory for girls. It was reported during her time at the prison that she was a model prisoner working in the laundry and doing needlework. And on the day of this article, September 16th, she celebrated her sweet 16 in prison. Not much of a celebration, but potentially confirms that she was born in 1890. The newspaper reporting wasn't always so accurate. And I already have an update on this. The 1890 date is accurate, it appears, but not the September birthday. I found Lizzie with her family on the 1894 Indian census rolls, which was taken in June, and she is listed as age four. The next day, she was transported by a United States Marshal to training school for girls in Geneva, Illinois. 
On the 1910 census, Lizzie was living at the Illinois School for Girls and listed as a 19-year-old in May. Shortly after the census, newspapers reported that she would be released immediately. Apparently, the rest of her required time there was commuted by President Taft, and she was free once again. Ultimately, she got what she wanted, out of her school back in Wisconsin, but not quite the picture she had imagined, I'm sure. So what was life like after prison? Lizzie did end up back on the reservation after being released. She appears on the 1911 Indian census as Elizabeth Cardish, which is her formal name. She first marries a man named Frank Cake on January 5th, 1911 whom she divorced prior to 1920 because in February of 1920, she remarried to John Fox in Michigan. Now, I'm going to throw in some confusion for fun. On the 1920 census, which was taken in January, Frank is living with two women and his two sons. One of the women is named Elizabeth C., and her age is 27. She is listed as wife, but she's also listed as divorced. Confusia, yeah. Frank is listed as divorced too. The other woman is named Lizzie, but she is 54, divorced, and she's listed as the first wife. So obviously the older Lizzie is not our Lizzie. So the woman named Elizabeth must be our Lizzie. It's unclear who the mother is of these children, but one son, Harry W., is 13, which would mean the 27-year-old would have been 14, And we know our Lizzie was in prison, so she can't be the mother. The other son, Sylvester, is seven years old, so he could be her son. I guess she was still living with Frank, but then married John Fox the next month. Very weird, but maybe that was just how you did things. You, I I don't know, you know, given the time frame in the 1920s and you're on a reservation, I don't know if... If that's a thing where you you stayed in the same household regardless until you remarried, I don't know. Regardless, the 1930 census clears up the two sons. As Frank and the older Lizzie apparently remarried and are together on the 1930 census with their son Harry and some other family members. Now, our Lizzie is not found on the 1930 census under any of her names, but her son Sylvester is living with his grandmother, Lizzie's mom. Also living in the home is John Cardish and his wife, and John is Lizzie's brother. They are all on the 1930-1931 Indian census rolls as well. I can only assume that Lizzie died prior to 1930, but cannot find anything about her death. Her second husband, John Fox, may go by the name John Shopwaska, and he is found in the 1931 Indian census rolls as married, but no one else is listed with him. Lizzie's story is definitely a unique one, and while it seems she didn't have a long life, her legacy lived on through her son, Sylvester. He went on to have his own child, Roger Leo, who died in 2004. I wonder if Lizzie told her son her story or if this was something she hid from her family. She had not one but two presidents commuting her sentence and a community supporting her freedom, despite the bickertry displayed in the newspapers because she was Native American. Until next time, my criminal genies, remember, the records don't lie, but your ancestors might.